Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, we are very excited for this special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, the director of news at The Block, and I am back from vacation and ready to host the show again. I'm being thrown into the deep end of the pool, as they say, with today's guest, Brian Brooks, who was confirmed as acting comptroller of the OCC on May 29th. He was previously Coinbase's lead lawyer as their chief legal officer and is a leading mind in the fintech and banking world. And we're very excited to have him on the show. He played a pivotal role in the rollout of the Crypto Ratings Council and has been a voice for this idea of a digital dollar led by the private sector. We're super excited to have Brian on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Hope you're doing well. Hey, Frank, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have you on to talk about you know the fintech charter you're working on and, and how crypto and digital assets fit into your vision for the OCC and even what that agency is sort of tasked with doing right in protecting and, and safeguarding the integrity of our banking system. But at a high level, you've been in your role for a few weeks. I want to talk about your priorities. What are you most interested in? It's not guaranteed that you'll be in this position for um, the entirety of a term. But while you're here, what do you want to get done? Well, uh, so so first of all, Frank, thanks for a lot for having me, and uh, thanks to your uh, to your listeners for uh, for participating. You know, you're a big voice in this stuff yourself. I, I would say, uh, you know, look, I'm here for nine months, and I might be here for several years. Uh, you know, these are uh, political roles, and so we'll see what. Uh, uh, the election outcome turns out to be. But I think there's a ton we can get done in nine months, you know, if that's at least the beginning of my work here. And, you know, my focus is sort of on two or three things, which all revolve around the same core. Uh, and that is, we need to make sure that the national banking system is flexible enough and open enough and strong enough to A, be relevant to people in 2020 and beyond, and B, to include people who historically have not been included in our national wealth creation machine. And I think when you look at a lot of the protests that have been going on over the last week or so, and a lot of the economic pain that's been felt over the last few months, what that tells me is that uh, the system that's worked very well for some of us for a long time has not worked well for all of us. And so I think there's a direct connection between modernizing the banking system and creating more access for diverse communities than was historically the case. That's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about fintech and crypto, because these are things that have the potential to be way more accessible and to make finance way more accessible to people who weren't included before. So we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, but that's kind of what I'm all about. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about the ways in which we can level the playing field so that our financial system is accessible to everyone, that's kind of at the heart of that has been this you know, marketing dribble from almost every fintech and crypto firm that they are decentralizing finance or making finance accessible, democratizing finance, specifically from a regulatory perspective. How do you execute on that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, you're definitely right. There, uh, it's it's a truism that every startup says that they're the ones who are going to change the world. And the truth is, you know, most startups are making incremental improvements in the status quo, and a handful of innovations are truly, truly changing the paradigm. We need to um, leverage and understand some of these things better so that we can chip away at whatever the barriers are. So I can just give you a few examples. One of the things that I'm very focused on is the idea that we have tens of millions of Americans in this country who don't have a credit score. And that, you know, has prevented millions, literally millions of people from getting a mortgage, buying a house, building wealth the way that those of us who have credit can do. One reason for that is that historically, the way that banks made credit decisions was based on your performance on previous credit. So it's one of those things sort of where it takes money to make money, you know? So if you didn't have a credit card before, you can't get a credit card today. Or if you didn't have a mortgage before, you can't get a mortgage today. To me, that's not fair. And and so enter some of these blockchain companies that are focused on creating decentralized credit bureaus that connect up many, many more nodes of information that reflect historical payments by people who may not be in the credit bureau system. And banks can use that information to make a creditworthiness assessment of somebody even if they've never had a credit account before. So what I'm talking about are connecting up landlord databases that show who's paying their rent on time and utility databases which show who's paying their gas bill on time, et cetera. Those things are not captured in credit bureau databases. They're not counted toward your credit score. And yet all of them bear on your future likelihood of making other payments on things like mortgages. So if we can leverage blockchain in ways that does that, that would be amazing. Same thing with appraisals. You know, one reason that it's hard to buy houses in certain parts of the country is that it's very, very hard to appraise a property that's in a remote rural location or a property that's vacant in a distressed urban area. But there are artificial intelligence algorithms that have been built over the last two and three years that have shown themselves to be highly accurate in predicting the value of those kinds of properties. And again, making them the kind of assets that banks will lend against. So there are a lot of things like that that really matter. And I could go on and on in other areas to have evolved to help consumers manage their debt if they're people in the gig economy. So these are people who optimize the timing between their fairly lumpy income, but their regular recurring payments in ways that optimize their grace periods, minimize their late fees, and thus make saving and wealth creation more realistic for people who are on the lower end of the income distribution. Tech makes all that possible. Historically, banks haven't necessarily been early adopters of that tech because they don't know what their regulators think about it, and they're afraid that some of those things might be risky. So I see my role now as helping provide clarity to banks that are thinking about using these things in terms of which ones we think are safe and when, so that we can more rapidly deploy those innovations to the benefit of people who would like to be bank customers, but maybe aren't yet. In a lot of ways, I feel like the role of technology and regulatory bodies have been at odds with one another when we think about improving the financial landscape or ecosystem, but often are trying to do similar things, right? When I think about capital formation, what Reg A Plus sought to do was make it easier for folks to raise money without all of the restrictions of a standard initial public offering process. And in a weird sense, the ICO craze and mania sought to do the same exact thing, except not from a regulatory perspective, but from a technology perspective. And so I think we see something similar with what you're talking about, which is how do we support banks, give them the tools and the regulatory clarity so that they can move ahead and implement things like a blockchain-based credit system that you're alluding to so that more folks have access to these types of services, which are integral to, you know, everything from buying a car to a house, et cetera. Um, but how do you, how do you balance providing banks with the clarity and the support to use these technologies while also ensuring that they're being responsible in their using and deployment of these new nascent technologies? Well, look, I mean, that, that's a great question. And obviously, that's the core mandate of the OCC is to maintain safety and soundness of the system and to make sure the consumers who are using the system are protected. And so, you know, A, the OCC has generations of history and 
3,600 professional staff who are expert in risk assessments and in looking at these kinds of things. Now, they're more expert in looking at traditional banking models, you know, financial models and bank delivery systems than they are at looking at some of the most cutting edge of the, of the fintech innovations. But having said that, evaluating these things is what we do for a living over here. And, you know, in my vision, we will be beefing up the OCC's Office of Innovation specifically to evaluate some of the most important innovation trends and to provide written guidance, I mean, like public guidance to banks about when these things are good. One example I like to give is a reason that a lot of lenders have given for not using artificial intelligence in their underwriting processes is because of a fear that they'll get in trouble for fair lending violations. And the reason they're afraid of that is usually when somebody accuses you of a fair lending violation, you can show them what your model is. You can say, you know, look, I gave this much weight to the property value and this much weight to the cash reserves and this much to their FICO score. And then you can show that each of those things has an effect on predicting future default rates. And so it was business justified and, and thus any disparities are not the result of your model. They're the result of differences in the actual population. That's normally the way somebody defends a fair lending case. With AI, there is no fixed set of criteria, right? Because the machine is learning as it ingests more data and has more observations about outcomes. And so you can't say in a particular case that this was the element that was driving the decision in a, in a given case. What I envision is very likely actually with things like AI, and so it's just a good example of, of how I think about your question, is AI is very likely to both increase the number of minorities being approved for loans, which is a good thing, and also potentially increase the disparity in that rate between minorities and non-minorities. And why would that be? Well, it would be because, as I was saying earlier, that um, there are a lot of people today who never get considered because they don't have a credit score. But with AI, we don't care about your credit score, right? The, the machine will figure out based on all kinds of characteristics whether you're likely to pay or not. And if you don't have a FICO score, it'll look at other factors. What that means is some of those 40 million people without a credit score will now get considered and approved, whereas they never would have even gotten considered before. But some of them will get rejected, whereas they wouldn't have been rejected before. And so you might get the statistical anomaly of more human beings getting more credit, which is good, but more of a statistical anomaly, which is potentially challenging. As the regulator, we need to express an opinion on how much improvement in terms of the number of people getting approved do we want to see before we're comfortable with a certain statistical disparity. Like, how do you optimize those kinds of things? And that's what we do here is to think about those kinds of balancing acts. And there is a huge balancing act in making sure that you're not showing favoritism to the fintech firms versus the banks or the banks versus the fintech firms. But I guess that kind of leads to my next question, which is if you're trying to make things clear for fintech firms and banks alike, how do you level the playing field between those two groups? And if you're trying to make things easier for fintechs, how do you avoid drawing in the ire of the banks whom you're responsible for regulating as well? Yeah, well, well, that's a great question. And obviously, you know, we hear from a lot of banks and bank trade associations that uh, they want to make sure there's a level playing field. So let me first say, I think the concern about that is slightly overblown in the sense that most fintechs are really not competing with banks. Most fintechs see banks as their customers, right? So like the AI credit underwriting model, that business is not trying to lend money or take deposits or whatever. They want to give that technology to Bank of America so that Bank of America could use it in their, um, you know, building out of their client base. Exactly. So, so in the main, that's what you see. Now, there are some companies that, of course, provide functions, the, the same functions banks provide. They just do it differently. So the big payments firms, the big marketplace lenders and, and the like, you know, some of these investment platforms, those are, in fact, potentially in direct competition. And what I say about that is the OCC is not going to give like a bank light charter. So we're not going to treat, you know, PayPal, if they were to apply for a bank charter, any differently in its payments business than we would treat the payments business of JP Morgan. The issue, of course, is that some of these uh, fintechs are in narrower lines of business than banks are. And, and that's fine. So they'll have a lighter regulatory footprint in the sense that we don't regulate them for businesses they don't do. But for the businesses that they're in, we have the gold standard of supervision. One thing to know is the reason that fintechs would want a bank charter has nothing to do with us giving them a free pass or, or being light in our supervision. 
they want a platform because even though we're tougher than any state regulator, there's only one of us, right? And so when you talk about a level playing field, if there's a national bank that has a national charter and can operate in all 50 states without regard for state licensing requirements, um, why wouldn't we want the major national fintechs to do the same thing? That's a level playing field in my view. There's tough regulation, but an exchange for which you get a single regulatory regime versus 50. And I think that's the kind of efficiency that, frankly, Hamilton had in mind when he was trying to knit together a single national economy. Uh, and, you know, we're the heirs. I've got a bust of Alexander Hamilton sitting right here in my office, uh, which reminds me of that every day. It sounds like that this is a big priority for the OCC to clear this path for fintechs vis-a-vis a national charter. But obviously there is a debate. And I think it's a debate that's been hashed out, no pun intended, in the cryptocurrency community over whether or not we should have a nationwide sort of regulatory framework that governs the exchange and storage of these assets versus the patchwork of state regulators that we're dealing with right now, namely, obviously, the New York Department of Financial Services, which is sort of known to be the the kingpin, if you will. And then there's obviously South Dakota and Wyoming. And, you know, one side of the argument is if you allow sort of this patchwork of states to operate, you get more innovation in, in regulations, whereas if you have a more national framework, you have more clarity, right? And it's obviously easier as a firm to navigate one office versus 50, and then obviously this, the however many territories that there are. And so in your seat, how do you sort of view that debate? And then secondly, to what degree is creating this charter, this 2.0 version of the special purpose national bank charter, a priority for you right now? Well, let me first say, I don't, uh, you know, in the same way that I don't necessarily see fintechs as all in direct competition with banks, I I don't see the OCC as necessarily in competition with the states. I mean, we've had a dual banking system in this country for 157 years. And, uh, you know, I think the state regulators, uh, many of whom I know personally, are tough, smart, rigorous people who are playing the role in the ecosystem that they're supposed to play. I mean, every state has its own market. Most banks are small. Most finance companies are relatively small. They mostly operate in one or two or three states. And so it's appropriate for those kinds of things to be regulated at the state level. Uh, And that's been going on for a long time. I think the reason the fintech charter is particularly relevant, however, is that many fintechs, particularly the payments firms and the crypto firms, are really, uh, the term I use is they're inherently borderless. You know, like the very nature of being in the payments business means that you have to operate without regard to state lines because people's payments and, uh, you know, other debt management relationships are not where they live. They're wherever their credit card company is, wherever their cable company is based, you know, wherever their mortgage company is. And those tend to be all over the country or even all over the world. For those kinds of businesses, it's a little harder to argue that the state platform makes sense. Now, you know, when you make the point that states kind of compete with each other to innovate on regulation, I think that's a good thing. That's a great feature of our federal system. I would argue that, however, at this point in our economic maturity in America, it's more important for people to be innovating on the technology than it is for them to be innovating on the regulation. One of the things you learn from law and economics, I think back to the Coase theorem, is sometimes it doesn't even matter what the rules are as long as that the rule just be established. And then, you know, every activity will find its highest value user. And so my view is at the OCC, you know, we probably will not get every rule exactly right. But since there's only one of us, once we've settled on a rule, everyone will know what it is, and then they can build their businesses. Versus if you have to constantly be wondering whether South Dakota is going to outflank Wyoming in terms of a crypto trust charter or whatever, you know, life can be very confusing. So I think having a stable single platform will be valuable to some companies. Maybe not all, and that's okay, but it will certainly be value to some companies, particularly the biggest ones. There's also an interesting dichotomy between, for some reason, cryptocurrency companies and fintech companies, even though if you look at it from a different angle, cryptocurrency companies kind of fall under the umbrella of fintech. In your view, to what degree should cryptocurrency companies be regulated differently than fintech firms? Are there any nuances that would distinguish perhaps the regulatory framework 
of a crypto lender, for instance, versus a traditional lender or a crypto brokerage firm versus a traditional brokerage firm. Maybe to use a more specific example, a Kraken, let's say, versus a Robinhood. Where, where do you see the regulations for those two types of companies maybe deferring and, and to what degree should they be different? Well, I'll just start by saying, you know, fintech and cryptocurrency companies like like these aren't terms of art. They're uh, so the kind of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And as you know, as well as I do, there are, there are many different kinds of companies engaged in the crypto world at different levels and things. So I, I kind of start with that idea. I mean, my view of what is special about crypto relative to other forms of finance is precisely its decentralization, which has at least one major implication for regulation. And that is that a lot of financial regulation is not focused on the products being delivered. It's focused on the entity or the intermediary that's doing the delivering, right? So like, for example, at the OCC, we regulate loans in some ways, but we also regulate banks, right? And so the thing about crypto is if you want to take the analogy, crypto does things that look like loans, but in the world of real crypto, there is no bank. That's the whole thing. All crypto is, is a network of computers devoting power to solving various mathematical problems or otherwise, you know, proving people's stake in an underlying asset class in order to achieve a consensus about the fact that somebody holds an asset versus somebody else holding an asset. So the product regulations that we enforced in, in our world seem to me perfectly applicable to crypto. But the intermediary regulations don't necessarily always apply because the blockchain is the thing that is substituting for the bank. Now, that's not true for every kind of crypto company. Obviously, there are exchanges and, you know, exchanges for crypto don't look all that different from broker dealers in the world of securities. They, you know, Coinbase, for example, is an intermediary. They do have customers. The customers have assets that often are custodied by that company. And so those kinds of entity regulations may apply to an exchange. But if you're a company building a DeFi protocol, for example, and it's truly decentralized, why are we regulating you? I mean, you're not actually interacting with anybody's money. It's the algorithm that's interacting with their money. And so that that's a different kettle of fish. So I see that as a difference among others. But at the same time, as I say, crypto's got all kinds of elements in its vertical stack. You've got the project developers. You've got the people who are doing, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of decentralized applications of various kinds. You've got the exchanges, the custodians. There are a lot of different people in that world, each of them presenting their own little regulatory puzzles. It's interesting because you have this background where you were at a cryptocurrency company and are now a regulator of many different financial services companies, which kind of gives you a unique vantage point and an understanding of what some of the confusing aspects of running a company from a legal perspective might be, running a fintech and cryptocurrency company from a legal perspective. One question I'd have for you is when you look at the banking landscape, right, there have been so many firms that have viewed crypto as something, you know, nefarious with which they shouldn't deal, right? These associations with the dark web and and the like, and many up until very recently have opted to not provide banking services to some of these companies. JP Morgan, right, recently made headlines for providing Coinbase and Gemini with banking services only this year. How can you as a regulator of of the fintech market and the crypto market structure things in a way or provide the clarity for the market in a way that can make players like JP Morgan more comfortable with involving themselves in this market? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's no question that uh, banks have been skittish about, um, you know, providing services to companies in that space. I guess one thing uh, is that, as many of your listeners know, we put out an advance notice of proposed rulemaking just last week, last week being like the week of the uh, second or first, I guess, of June, uh, where we asked both banks and other people in the crypto world to give us some information about what's really going on in terms of the ability of crypto companies to secure banking relationships. And I think once we have that and we understand what the impediments are, what the risks are, and what the benefits are of creating those different kinds of banking relationships, we'll be in more of a position to take a comprehensive view of this. And so 
you know, look, I, I did work at a crypto company, but I don't want to prejudge the, you know, appropriateness of uh, various different aspects of that business to the banking sector. So we'll figure that out based on public comment, I think. Having said that, you know, the basic message I've tried to convey since being at the OCC is that there's nothing specific about crypto that should prevent banks from dealing with it. Banks have to comply with anti-money laundering laws and customer protection laws and other things. And that applies to crypto the same as it applies to anything else. And it's possible that because many crypto companies are young and immature, they may not have you know, developed all of their uh, internal compliance processes the way that we would expect. And those companies may not be ready for banking relationships. But there are other companies that have been around for years. And, uh, you know, so you mentioned JP Morgan's banking of a couple of big and relatively mature crypto companies. That would be an example of a bank looking at them and saying, okay, you've gotten to a place where you have the kind of compliance and other internal control procedures that we're comfortable with. So my point is, you know, at the OCC, we take a no discrimination approach, you know, in the same way we don't want, you know, a bank to discriminate, um, you know, against an oil company and in favor of some other company or whatever. We don't want somebody to discriminate against a crypto company who otherwise complies with law if the bank is in that business of providing those kinds of services. So, you know, we'll be coming out with more comprehensive guidance as we get responses to our, uh, our uh, advance notice of proposed rulemaking here in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, I think the point is, you know, the rules are the rules and they don't apply differently. They don't apply less, but they also don't apply more to crypto companies. And to a degree, you want to sort of set the foundation so that banks and other financial services companies can leverage, feel free to engage with nascent technologies like crypto, like Bitcoin, but also, as we were talking about earlier in the conversation, artificial intelligence. Exactly. And, and so I come back to what I said before, which is that I think that there are, you know, three or four things that seem to me to be like paradigm changing innovations. I count crypto and AI among those. You might also say like a satellite imaging uh, is another area that will transform real estate finance. Um, and then there are other things that are you know, significant incremental improvements, even though not absolutely radical game changers, but still improvements that will open up the system and make it more accessible to more people. All that's good. What I want to do is provide clarity so that banks don't feel like they have to be ultra conservative, but instead can be prudent in their use of innovations that are good for the world. When you were at Coinbase, one thing that I think you were fairly well known for was your advocating in favor of private sector-led digital dollar projects. You penned a essay in Fortune, which is really good. Everyone should read it, arguing that private companies are best positioned to build out a, a digital dollar. Obviously, Coinbase and Circle are behind the center consortium, which is behind the USDC digital dollar. Um, there's been a almost Cambrian explosion, if you will, of different stablecoin projects over the last few years. And of course, at the center of that has been Facebook's much debated Libra. You've kind of changed your tone a little bit in terms of whether or not it should be enterprise-led versus government-led when you think about how a U.S. dollar can be best executed, is it something that maybe the Fed extends a licensing right to a firm to issue a digital dollar, or you have all of these different companies kind of going it alone? Is there one framework under which these different digital dollars operate? How do you see that panning out? Well, um, so Frank, I appreciate the question. I, I think my view on this has been fairly, fairly consistent. And, you know, the only modification I guess I'd put on it is that uh, in my new role, obviously, I want to interface with the Fed and continue a dialogue that I had with them dating back before I got here about, uh, you know, how one would think about it. But my philosophy is that, you know, there are things that the government's good at and things that the private sector is good at, right? So the government is really good at establishing frameworks that allow competitors to operate, you know, in, in some sort of a way that uh, generates value for, for people. Think about the way that the government sets the rules of driving. You know, it says that you have to stop at a red light. And that's a really good thing because drivers might not otherwise, and they'd crash into each other at intersections or whatever. So the government's good at doing that. It's not particularly good at building technology. So if you look at the handful of examples where the government has tried to build something 
generally speaking, it's a disaster, right? And in America, we shouldn't have to rely on the government to do that because we have the most vibrant and sort of innovative tech sector in the world. So my thought about all of this is that the role of the government is in a stablecoin project, for instance, is to say, listen, here are the collateral requirements that have to be observed. Here are the customer disclosures that must be observed. Here are the audit requirements that must be observed. Uh, maybe there's an insurance requirement. Uh, you know, I don't know. And you can't do a stablecoin project without doing those things. But in terms of the stablecoin itself, what its features are, how it is marketed, what uh, use cases are built on top of those stablecoin blockchains, why would we want the government to do that? You know, I mean, that's what innovators are all about. And I think about like the best analogy to this would be when cell phones were invented, you know, 30, 35 years ago. And this is what the FCC did vis-a-vis -vis the private sector. The FCC said, here are the emission limitations so people don't die of brain cancer. Here are the bandwidth requirements so cell phones don't interfere with each other. I mean, they set frameworks like that. And then Samsung went off in one direction and Motorola went off in a different one. And eventually Apple came in with the iPhone. Those are all good things, right? And the FCC didn't say, hey, because we're the communications agency, we're going to build cell phones. So why would the financial regulators say, hey, we're the regulators, so we're going to build stable coins? Stable coins are technology. You know, the underlying money, that's created by the Fed. But the stable coins, which have all of their features that make them better than regular money, those are tech projects. They ought to be built by tech innovators, in my view. Well, I think this sort of notion of cooperation is something that underpins a lot of these different topics that we're talking about, not necessarily banks versus fintech or fintech versus banks or fintech versus crypto companies and the Fed, in many respects, you can have all of these different groups and organizations working together to some degree. The Federal Reserve, though, has been a bit resistant, though, or the Fed itself has been a bit resistant to this idea of a blockchain-based dollar, or at the very least, there are many ways you can look at this. They haven't been as aggressive as maybe China, right, which is kind of going full steam ahead on their blockchain-based version of their own digital currency. How do we, and maybe not even you, Brian, as acting comptroller, but maybe the folks who are really gung-ho about this. So if we think about maybe folks like Chris Giancarlo or the good people at the Libra Association, how can they make the Fed more comfortable, the government more comfortable with this idea of a digital dollar? I think uh, a couple ways. So, so first of all, if the original Libra rollout taught us anything, it's that the Fed will have to be comfortable that stablecoin projects are not a threat to monetary policy. And so, you know, that has a number of implications. But one of them is the idea that basket stablecoin projects are likely to be more challenging from the Fed's perspective than single currency stablecoin projects are. So I kind of start with that, which is what's the core mission? If you're trying to do one innovation, in other words, take a currency and make it more useful to people through its programmability features, through its uh, development, you know, as, as, as a sort of underlying baseline for development projects and things, that's doable. But if you try to do two innovations at the same time, which is, you know, one, to innovate the technology, and two is to actually innovate the currency, that's going to be a big challenge. I don't think people are ready for that yet. Five years from now, they may well be, but you have to do one thing at a time. So I start with that. Second, you know, when you say that the Fed is not, uh, you know, not as excited about this as as uh, the Chinese or or the you know Bank of England or other countries that have leaned into this, I guess you know I don't actually know exactly where they are. I know that when I was in my prior job, I had good face to face engagement with senior Fed staff and one of the governors over there. So I know that they're really looking at it hard. And at the same time, what I would say is they haven't done much to stand in the way of these stablecoin projects. I mean, I was just right now, as we're talking, looking at coin market cap, and I'm seeing that the USDC coin, you know, which when I left Coinbase had about $450 million of circulating supply, is now at like $740 million. So just in the last couple of months, that thing has increased in supply by, what is that, 70%, something like that. So that tells me these private projects are getting a ton of traction and getting a lot of you know, adoption, which is, which is a pretty strong signal. Um, I think the biggest challenge of, of these projects, to be honest, is going to be less about the Fed and the banking regulators. It's going to be more about FinCEN and compliance with BSA AML protocols and the travel rule. That's where things get complicated. And I know the industry is really working on that. But you know, look, these are 
new ways of delivering money when you transmit money, especially across borders, that raises issues about terrorism, financing, money laundering, and other things. And, and that problem will have to be solved. But what I would say is, look, I don't think America necessarily has to have the government leading in order for America to lead. You know, the government didn't give you the iPhone. When we usually do best as a country, it's when we're harnessing our market dynamic to let innovators, you know, motivated by a profit incentive, go and build crazy stuff. That's when we really shine as a country. So I guess what I'm saying is the fact that all these U.S. built stablecoins are doing well and getting adoption, that might be all you need to know. I think that's a really, really good point. And the growth of USDC has been impressive. And even the unabated growth of, of Tether has been impressive, despite some of the you know, hangups around their operations. You made a really interesting point about how companies or stablecoin projects that are basically just trying to improve the technology around the dollar, not the monetary policy of it, are pretty much have been safe or probably will be safe. What about something like Maker, which is obviously a bit more complex and involves um, different collateral types and some view as leaning more towards the security realm? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so so Maker and and the Dai token, you know, are have a little bit of the uh, of the uh, issue of Libra, where the thesis of what it is has changed a little bit over the life of the project. And obviously, you know, in my role, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment on the, you know, value or lack of value of a particular particular project. But for those of you who are listeners who aren't aren't necessarily familiar, this is a project whose idea is a stablecoin built on crypto as opposed to a stablecoin built on fiat, right? So if you have, or at least originally it was, and so if you have a stablecoin whose value is pegged to underlying Ethereum tokens, then uh, you know that's going to present a whole different set of issues and may look more like a security or a derivative, depending on the way that it's structured, and may be less stable than the name stablecoin would imply. And so it has to be supported not only by the underlying tokens, but also by like market operations engaged in by the issuer. So th that's definitely another category of, of stablecoin projects altogether. My basic view about crypto is, is, is just, and I've, I've said this now for a couple of years, is that um, I think one reason people have so, you know, lay people have such a difficult time understanding what it's about is crypto is so revolutionary and it's gone so far beyond what most people think of as finance that they can't quite understand what it's doing. So I think like with the USDC token, people get that. It's really simple. This thing's worth a dollar. It's kind of like a prepaid card, only it's got a whole lot more features to it. They get that. And if you use that for a year and then you move on from that to a die token, you can sort of understand it. But imagine if in 1987, somebody had handed you an iPhone instead of a flip phone and it had all these apps on it and, and everything. You just would have had no idea even what it was because you were used to a phone that was wired into the wall. That was too many steps away from your knowledge base for you to conceive of. And I think that's part of the crypto messaging issue is it's so revolutionary. It's like five hops from the status quo when people can only conceive of one hop at a time. And, and DAI might be an example of that. Could be a really super cool idea. But the question is, can people understand it? That's a really good point. And I feel like one of crypto's biggest problems is, and there's a lot of problems, right? I mean, we could go down a laundry list of them, but... Um, for manipulation and everything else. But there is a communication marketing problem of explaining to folks what these things are. And I don't know, like maybe even stablecoin isn't the best word. Have you ever thought about that? Like what would maybe be maybe digital dollar or digital fiat? I know there's a lot of crypto people who uh, recently, this is a recent phenomenon. Whenever I talk about the growth of the stablecoin market, there'll be folks in my reply saying fiat's not stable. Fiat is, you know, the root of all evil, you know, you know, the stuff that goes on in the crypto world. But I don't know, like, do you think stablecoin is the best word for this or, or maybe our framing should be different? Who knows? There's probably a reason that I was never hired into anybody's marketing department. That's probably <laughs> not my, not my area. But what I would say in response to that is just the concept of crypto encompasses a lot of different things. It does. Yes. The concept of banking encompasses a lot of different things. Some people think it only means taking deposits. Other people think it means trading derivatives. Who, who really knows? Yeah. And so the way that I've always tried to describe it to people is just the insight that 
anything with a single point of failure is riskier than anything that is decentralized, right? Uh, you, you know this from our own bodies, right? There are redundancies built in. Our immune system works a certain way. I mean, you know, there's, there are not that many single points of failure in the human body. Same thing with the economy. We have lots of companies in this country. Same thing with people who invest in mutual funds. It's decentralized. Even if one country company goes bankrupt, your other companies in the fund might have value. Same thing with crypto. The, the core inside of it just is if instead of having all value determined by reference to a single thing, right? If instead the value can be created by multiple nodes, you know, doing work, and if the crypto token is the incentive for people to devote the computing power to that so that the network can grow, there are a lot of things you can do with that insight. Some of it has to do with generating payment systems like stable coins. Others of it has to do with building a better internet like they're doing it, uh, you know, on the Filecoin project. Others of it have to do with holding value um, outside of the fiat world like Bitcoin. So I think the core thing people need to understand is just we're trying to decentralize a system that historically was centralized. And then what all can you do with that insight? But if you don't start there, if you just start with the projects, people's heads spin. They don't really understand what's going on. I feel the same level of anxiety trying to present this stuff to folks as a, as a journalist, right? Because it's not one size fits all. There are a lot of different moving parts as you're alluding to. And that sort of comes in with stepping into a new role as well, right? I mean, you're taking the reins of the OCC at what some might describe as a interesting time, right? A somewhat controversial time. We've been talking about leveling the playing field and how technology and regulation can play a role in doing that. You got a letter recently from uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren about your predecessor's uh, removal of different aspects of the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, and that's sort of been a controversial thing. Looking forward, how do you plan on addressing some of the questions around that and other areas where the OCC might be kind of taking a different course from other agencies or political interests? Yeah, well, well, look, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot in that question that I, I guess I'd unpack. So I, I'd start by saying, I don't think that uh, the OCC either under controller auditing or under my leadership removed anything from the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, what we did was we added a lot to it. Uh, starting with uh, a lot of clarity that was lacking and going on to the idea that, um, uh, you know, we should be measuring banks' performance not only where they maintain their branches, but most importantly in the areas where they've pulled out their branches over the years, which tend to be, you know, low and moderate income communities. And, you know, I think what the OCC was trying to do with CRA, and obviously I wasn't here for most of that time period, I was only here at the, at the tail end of it, but I think what we were trying to do with CRA what we were trying to do with the rule I signed on my first day in office, fixing the Madden decision, and what we were trying to do with fintech is all of a piece. What it's all about is making the financial system more accessible to more people. It's just as simple as that. CRA does that by making sure that banks are targeting their activities, not only where their branches are in what tend to be the fancier neighborhoods, but also in places they pulled their branches out. The Madden fix rule, you know, which was the first thing I signed on day one in, in office, was designed to make it possible for banks to leverage their balance sheet by engaging in loan sales with fintechs, those marketplace lenders and the like, so that that money could then be recycled back into more loans to more people. You know, that was the idea. And my real focus on the fintech charter is the same thing. It is the idea that there are companies out there that could deliver more services more cheaply if they had a single national platform to do that and were doing it in a regulated environment, then not. So all of that, you know, is designed to unleash the power of markets for the benefit of more people. Because, you know, my view, and I know that not all people share my political worldview, but my view is a world where markets are allowed to operate is a world that lifts more people out of poverty and creates more opportunity for more people than other kinds of worlds. And I know I personally benefited from that in my own lifetime, and I want others to have the same opportunity. That's what motivates everything we do here. Well, maybe Sherrod Brown will will listen to this podcast and have a, a deeper sense of what your perspective is. I think even more controversial might be, I'm hearing through the grapevine that you're looking to introduce more hot wings to the agency or or change up the dress code a little bit? 
Well, you know, I will, uh, I will not lie. I am sitting here in the controller's office, you know, next to the American flag and the Hamilton bust, wearing my skinny jeans, like I'm sitting in <laughs> That's big. That's countercultural over here. But you know what? I think people like it. I've actually gotten good feedback. Uh, I think there's some energy around it. And as for the hot wings, you know, your listeners will know that uh, I grew up in a town in the, in the Southwest where I ate spicy food three meals a day. And so what Frank is referring to was it was an epic day at Coinbase where my colleagues in the Portland office invited me to the Coinbase version of The Hot Ones, you know, this TV show where people ask you questions and before you answer each question, you have to, you have to eat an increasingly spicy hot wing. And so there were 10 wings and 10 sauces placed in front of me when I sat down. And, uh, and by the way, I'm going to give a shout out to my former colleague, Dan Yu, on this. It's important that he, uh, he be called out on this. He and I went up to that office together for this particular day. So we each had 10 wings and we each had the 10 sauces. Now, according to the lore in that office, no one, no Coinbase executive had ever made it beyond wing number six because the, hot, the sauces got super hot when you got to wing number six. So I uh, did a lot of trash talking at the beginning of this. And I said, listen, um, given I'm from Pueblo, Colorado, I said, there's nothing you're going to throw at me that's going to be too spicy for me. And I got a lot of cat calls for that comment. You know, like I didn't know what was coming and they were going to take me down. So Dan, you and I sat down and we started answering questions and we had the first wing. No problem. Second wing, totally fine. We got to about question number three or maybe it was four. And my friend Dan had to take off his... Uh, had to undo his collar because, you know, his neck was starting to sweat fairly profusely. As one does. Yeah, we get we're wing number four, and now he's got the flop sweats. I mean, it is pouring down his face, and I, it, I'm, not, I'm just not even noticing it. <laughs> so then when we blow past question number six, and at question number six, I, I don't remember. I think Dan might have just gotten clean off the stage. In any case, he started drinking milk at that point. But we got to wing six. Then wing seven, people started gasping because they'd never seen it. I got right on through wing number 10 and it was, it was fine. It was no problem. You know, you do not mess with kids from Pueblo, Colorado. That's what I would say. Those are the types of stories you need to flaunt around the offices of various banks to sort of get them to know with whom they're reckoning. Since we're taking a stroll down memory lane, um, I guess just hearkening back on your, not to age you, of course, because you're on our podcast and we want to be polite but decades of experience, right, in, in banking and finance and, you know, going back to your days with Mnuchin at Bank One and, and of course, Coinbase. What are some of the things that you've picked up on in your career that when you glean back on, uh, you find to be useful at your new position? Well, um, there I, I've learned a number of uh, things along the way, and, and I am a big believer in the idea that life has uh, four or five pivot moments uh, where your whole life goes off in a different direction, depending on which direction you go at that moment. In no particular order, you know, I uh, one thing I learned when I worked with uh, Secretary Mnuchin and Controller Odding at uh, One West Bank was taking prudent risk can be a really smart thing. So, you know. Um, I was a lawyer at, a, at one of the great law firms doing just great when uh, you know, future Secretary Mnuchin asked me to go out with him and help him run his new bank. And a lot of people wouldn't have done that. A lot of people would have said, geez, you know, that bank failed and it's a weird thrift in Pasadena, California. Why in the world would you do that? But that, uh, that changed my life for sure. Uh, having the opportunity to go and actually run something, which as a lawyer I'd never done before, Taking a risk, managing a financial institution—these were these were new things for me. So that was uh, that was uh, you know a super important lesson. I think um, you know I, I was lucky enough that just at the time that we sold the bank, uh, I had the opportunity to become the general counsel of Fannie Mae, which is the nation's largest financial institution by assets. And what I learned there was the importance of uh, working in a mission-driven company, of working for something higher than yourself. You know, one of the core values of Fannie Mae was that uh, you know we were not about making money. We were not about managing interest rate risk. What we were there to do was to create homeownership in America. And everybody showed up at that place every day believing that that was a real higher calling. And that taught me something about leadership and motivating people. It's not about next year's bonus. You know, that, that actually isn't contrary to popular belief what gets people up in the morning. And uh, at Fannie Mae, we really believed that. And then, of course, it was at Fannie Mae and, and then later when I really discovered innovation and realized that innovation was not just about making a buck in the tech 
IPO, IPO world, innovation really is actually about doing things better for more people. You know, so I went on some fintech boards and then ultimately joined Coinbase. That Silicon Valley experience did forever change the way that I looked at the world. And so, you know, all of those things uh, were life lessons that, that shaped my outlook. And everybody's got a different collection of those. But for me, uh, I wouldn't have changed any of those things for for all the money in the world. Those were those were life changing, value changing propositions for me. Well, you know, we we've gone over a bit on the time, and I want to be respectful um, of your diary and schedule because I know you probably have a lot on your plate. I won't bring up hot wings again, but there there is an opportunity there to bring it up. I I do want to sort of just close things out with, I guess, your view more broadly on crypto and and how the OCC can kind of advocate for it. Everybody, you know, in the media or in my circles, when they saw that you were appointed, kind of thought of this as a as a really important moment. And I think um, my colleague and friend over at Coindesk, Nick Day, referred to you, I think, as the crypto uncle, I think, in a story that he wrote. How should folks listening think of the OCC when it comes to digital assets? Well, I mean, look, let me be clear. I, you know, in my role here, I can't advocate for or against, you know, we're, we're the supervisors. Uh, our, our role is to protect the system and make the system stronger. But having said that, I think it's awfully valuable to have somebody in my seat who does understand what crypto is about and can bring, you know, an appropriate analysis to how banks should interact with crypto. What I know that I think many, many people in Washington don't know is that there are tens of millions of Americans who, who hold crypto assets. And I think if you believe crypto was some niche side sketchy thing, you know, you wouldn't care about it. But what I know from my experience is that at one company alone, there were 30 million customers. And so as the OCC, we have to take that seriously. That's, that's a lot of market demand for an important asset class that is especially important to the next generation. So like people my age and older may not be big adopters, but if you talk to people who are 30, you know, they all own Bitcoin uh, and they all have their different reasons for doing that. And so I need to take that seriously and I need to think of a framework in which those assets can be held safely, custodied safely, traded in a way that's consistent with good disclosure and uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't disfavor the underlying technology relative to other assets. And so that's my worldview. Uh, you know, again, I don't advocate for crypto, but um, I think the market has spoken on it and we need to be responsive to demand here. So, you know, rest assured, we will work on frameworks, we will work on platforms. The companies and the projects have to stand or fall on their own merits, but my job is to make sure the system works for everybody. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your vision, at least for the next nine months and how you view crypto and fintech's position in the broader banking and financial landscape. And we wish you luck and we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate the opportunity. I'd like to give our sponsor, Bitstamp, a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.